All right. That's my cue, that rumble you feel or you heard, that's just letting us know, okay, get those, you know, those beautiful rears in the seats. And um, I mean, we can have humor here, right? Humor's okay. Is humor okay in this place? I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) You were wonderfully created. Did you know that? You were wonderfully made. Jim, you're wonderfully made. Yeah, thank you. So are you. Debbie, you're wonderfully made in the eyes of the beholder. I'm going to invite you for a moment uh, just to ponder these words in Romans 15 as we kick into things. We're going to kind of be kicking into high gear. But I really appreciate this proclamation of remembrance, if you will. When I went to Bible school, I don't know why. By that time, I was 18. I had read the Bible through from cover to cover a few times. Not as many times as I would have preferred. My dad always said, you need to read the whole thing from beginning to end. It's all tied together. And so as I was reading through, I happened upon this part of Scripture. Maybe it never really jumped out at me before. In Romans 15, it says this, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. This is the part I want us to take a hold of. What was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we may have hope, not shame, Not condemnation, not despair, not dread, not turmoil, but hope. Hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Paul's telling us the endurance and hope comes through your faith in Christ, through the encouragement that comes through the scriptures. Experience is one thing, but it needs to be validated by scripture. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. You and I have this harmony in Jesus. As we go to the Word, no matter what we're going through, whatever we face, if we're honest with ourselves, if we turn to the Word of God and look to the Word and the Word only, we will find hope. We will find strength of character. We will find resolve to endure what we face. Our experience won't dictate how we're to view the world and how to go about living for God and following Jesus, but the Word. And so this is a part of Scripture that I was reminded of just this morning. As I was penning some things down, or really in a digital age, I'm you know hitting my keyboard, And I really wanted to emphasize that before we got into this next section, we're going through Matthew 5. Matthew 5 has a wonderful tapestry of Jesus' teaching. But I can't be like someone who says, well, when we get to a really difficult part in Scripture, we're just going to glaze over. We're going to pass that part. We're going to be like a buffet here, and we're going to pick and choose what we want. We need to go right through the whole thing. I'm going to tell you for a moment, you're going to sense some tension. But that's on purpose. Because as we go through the tension, as we come through to the other side, I, I ask you, almost plead with you, bear with me to the other side. 
Okay, when we come through, we're going to experience the tremendous hope that we have in Jesus. So beginning in Matthew chapter 7, verse um, 24, Jesus says this. And Claudia, if you could cue it up to verse 24, that would be great. Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. We know Jesus is our rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and it collapsed with a great crash. And look what happens as a, as a response to Jesus' teaching in verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. You might be thinking, well, what does that mean? One with authority and not like the scribes. The scribes, we know the, the Pharisees were responsible for writing and keeping account. But Jesus later on, and as we go through, says that your hearts are from you. You please me with your offerings, your display, but your hearts are far from you. You're like a brood of vipers. You're in it for yourselves. You're in it to please yourselves. People sometimes think that Jesus only spoke kind and, you know, just lovey-dovey things. He said, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. He flipped tables and he said, you've turned my house into not a house of prayer, but the opposite. So here the crowd acknowledges his authority. So for a moment, if we can understand that who Jesus is, that he is the fullness of God, he is the very love of God who has come and has come into this world. We can take a hold of that and say, well, today really is a new day. And so on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, even as we look to Matthew chapter 5, we remember that it's this dawn of orientation day. We're in like day four, okay? Jesus is going, he's teaching. We're essentially in day four, and he's beckoning us to grasp the heartbeat of heaven. Like the bass on the kick, Isaiah. Get the heartbeat of heaven. Understand what I'm telling you. You've heard it said, but I say unto you. And as we go into this next section, I want to emphasize on top of Romans 15, the emphasis that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. How many believe that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil? Amen. All the works. Not just some, not just few, not the ones that we're okay with him destroying. All of them. In 1 John chapter 3, it says, The one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. And I got to admit, when I was reading this this morning and getting ready for this afternoon, I got excited. I thought, this is awesome. Jesus is destroying. He destroyed on the cross the hold of sin, the mastery, the bondage, our willfulness to want to do sin. Now he's put it within our place by the power of the Holy Spirit to want what God wants from the heart. And yet that stinking sing agent of the enemy continues to try and speak oppressively and tries to get in where he doesn't belong. And so these works, we looked last week, they're interpersonal attacks. He wants us to go in the way of murder and be pushed to the brink of war to destroy one another like King did of Abel. 
Jesus says the fruit, of, the fruit, the opposite of that is reconciliation, loving one another as I have loved you. It's not easy, but it's worth it. And today we go to the next part. The next part in the conversation. The area that the devil, I think we'd all agree, wants to target and is targeting, especially in the church today. Our marriages. The blessed union of two becoming one. Two becoming one. Right in the beginning in Genesis, the Bible says that God created humanity in God's image. He made man in his image and he made them male and female. Later goes on, chapter two says that what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is something that Jesus later on goes to describe in Matthew 19. What God has joined together, let no one destroy or break apart. And as I was reading through this passage today in Matthew 5, I just had this understanding of, you know, Jesus is speaking to us here through this passage saying, the devil wants to drive a wedge into your relationships. I think all of us, were under no falsehood here. We know that he wants to do that. If he could just get that wedge, if he can just break up that, even which is divine, and possibly establish that crack, if you will. That crack can grow, it can sever, it can lead to bitterness, hatred, and even gossip or slander. And this is what the enemy of our soul is endeavoring to do, but we don't have to lose heart because Jesus came to destroy that work. Not just what happened on the cross, what Jesus accomplished is past, present, and future. And so in many respects, as we return to our passage here today, we're going to see that the enemy of our souls, make no mistake about it, wants to move us in behavior that's contrary to God's design for our life. What his intended purpose is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, and all the shapes and sizes of what his design is, and that includes marriage. Are we on the same page? And so this message, in many respects, that I realize is going to be probably a multi-parter, if that's even proper grammar, I don't know, a multi-part message. Okay, there's several pages here. If I just, as going through this, I've been so enriched myself and being strengthened and even stretched in my understanding of the Word of God. We want to take our time going through this. And so the title for today is this. It's a dawn, a new day. Look to God in your relationships. Trust Him for your marriage. Look to Him in all your relationships. Trust in Him for your marriage. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, we're told this. Okay, buckle up. We're going we're gonna to make it through the other side. We're on a journey here. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written divorce. But I tell you, 
Everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual morality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that we can read here today together. Lord, as we go through your teaching, or parts of it are at times difficult to grasp, at times difficult to apply. But Father, I ask even in my preparation, Lord, that your spirit would draw each of us, would teach each of us your design and will for our life. Remind us ever so that we are secure in your hand, that we are loved by you, we're forgiven by you because of the blood of Christ. And Lord, by that grace that teaches us to walk in your way, may we walk in your way, committed to you, in Jesus' name, amen. So many ways you can see here, there's a, there's a lot. I mean, it's kind of like, man, this is, this is heavy. And essentially, I wrote here, there's two parts Jesus is looking at. Maybe you could say even three. But two parts, Jesus is teaching about idolatry and essentially censoring the divorce practices because of idolatry. Where's that coming from? If you look at it in many respects, he's tackling the vice, the very vice that leads to separation, idolatry. If we tackle that vice, if we take divisive, evasive action, we can prevent, by the Lord's help, the separation. So he starts here, right here in verse 27, just to make sure there's no confusion. So we're beginning the first part on the journey. He refers, he says, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What you gotta love about Jesus is he's referring to the word of God. He's referring to law. He said they came to fulfill it and not abolish it. He's referring to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and the Ten Commandments. Interesting enough, following the interpersonal relationships of not murdering, that's commandment number six. And what follows number six? Number seven. Seven is the number of perfection. And interesting enough, number seven is do not commit adultery. You want to experience perfection at home? Don't do it. Now, you might be like me and you appreciate definitions. To divine things is helpful. Adultery refers, is referred to as this, engaging in sexual activity outside one's marriage. Straightforward. So in other words, do not engage in that activity outside of your marriage bonds. This is what Jesus is saying. Don't do that. <laughs> and really, he's upping the ante. What's at stake here is he's affirming that adultery is, uh, uh, pertains and affirmed by not just the physical, but the emotional bond. We all, many of us here are married. And if you're in your second marriage, there's grace. There's, there's grace for all of us. We all understand that there's a physical and emotional joining in our relationships. 
There's that beautiful bond in many aspects, and not just of a, of a sexual in nature, but Jesus is rightfully saying that two are one. These two, the emotional, physical, are one, just as the two become one flesh. And I appreciate what he's saying here is if, if you can understand this vice, if you can approach this vice from the very beginning, it will not wreak destruction in your life. It won't rip through your unit. Solomon, one of the children of David, we know David. We know the experiences that we had was a great king and yet had his shortcomings. We know that he engaged in idolatry. And so his second son born to him when he, when he returned to the Lord and repented of, of his ways, that Bathsheba in him, becoming the permissible will of God, bore a son, Solomon. So he understood the very destruction. Why do I believe he understood that? was because fathers talk with their children. Our fathers speak with us and teach us the ways of the Lord and say, listen, son, if there's one thing I can tell you, I want to share this with you. Follow the Lord. Trust in the Lord. I'm sure that's what David and how he encouraged his son. And so Solomon writes this in Proverbs 6.32. The one who commits idolatry lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Proverbs 6, 27 and 29. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? So it is with the one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. And very similar to the aspect of murder, you know, if you say, you fool, and you get on that side of the person, they're going to come after you. In the same respect, if you go looking and being where you have no business being, you're going to grab the attention of that spouse. So Jesus, our good shepherd, our, our gatekeeper of life, if you will, he's showing us the way to graze in suitable pasture. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge out. He doesn't want to see a bunch of mutilated believers walking around, okay? It's not about walking around with missing eyes and missing limbs, it's, it's, it's a figure of speech to emphasize this is important. This is serious business. There's grace for you. There's love for you, just as there's grace and love in my shortcomings and missteps. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 7. He says this, Truly I tell you, I am the gate, gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and I will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and I have come so they may have life and have it in abundance. That sounds pretty good, right? An abundant life. It says in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he's not the shepherd, doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about his sheep. What I appreciate about what Jesus is saying here is he cares so deeply for us and what he's proclaiming, he's giving his life for it. Remember, this is on the way to Jerusalem. He's not just going through the motions. I say unto you, and then he goes in the private and says, well, good luck with that. He heads right to Jerusalem, right to the point of Golgotha, on the cross, nail-pierced hands, 
to back this up. In verse 9, he talks about this pasture. And so in Christ, we can have this sustainable, suitable grazing environment that's nourishing for our souls. And sometimes yet, we've all done it, I've done it, we think, and I'm not speaking about adultery here, okay, just to put a disclaimer out there. We think the grass is greener on the other side, in, in many ways, in many factors. If I could just go there, if I could just, you know, go to that church, if I could just, you know, make this amount of money or go have this kind of job, or it's going to be so much better. But when we look at it in this context of adultery, the grass is greener on the other side. Do not mistake yourself like Solomon is saying. Don't think for somehow, for some reason, it's going to be different for you. If you're in a unit and you're bonded to another, don't think it's going to work out differently for me because God is with me. He's saying here, the importance is, if you're following him, he says, understand that this begins in the heart. God's heart is not for us to live and conduct ourselves in this way. And this is something that's, you know, happened quite a bit um, from the time of the early church itself. Proverbs 7.26 says this, For she has brought many down to death. Her victims are countless. Her house is the road to Shiloh, descending to the chambers of death. And yet our good shepherd, our gatekeeper of life, Jesus Christ, is revealing what we already know, that adultery begins in the heart, and he tells us in many other ways in different words not to fear because he's going to the cross. And so on this side of the cross, before he gets to Golgotha, what is he telling us to do? What is he telling us to do? Look at verse again, 29 to 30. He's telling us to take action. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Do you know how this hit home for me in today's landscape? It's like if you're on Instagram or social media and we're using our fingers and our hands, we have those ways and gateways that have been opened to us like never before. You can be sitting at home, you can be watching TV. It used to be called the boob tube and now we have social media where you can now go and look at anybody that you want. No one's looking, no one's watching. You start clicking, like, 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 scroll, scroll. And no one knows. God knows, but no one really knows. But he's showing us that his, he's there, his prompting is going to be there, but you have a part to play in this. We're not mindless drones, if you, if you understand what I'm saying, where he's just inputting the download, be like, so, do, 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 do it, you know. <laughs> That's free will, to worship him, to, to love him, and to walk in his ways. And the way that I'm encouraged, even to look in this difficult passage of Scripture, is that when we engage his grace and truth, as we're told in John 1.14, he is grace and truth, we will walk in that love, we will walk in his teaching to do the right thing this day forward. And I have to admit, at first when we got this part of Scripture, I did not want to preach on this at all. 
because I care for each of you. I care for the families represented here. I know that some are in, um, you know, a second marriage, and I am, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to shame you, but just to share what Jesus is saying. And if, if for the very moment you can get behind this and understand that, yeah, this wasn't God's will and design for my life, but there's grace for me, there's forgiveness for me, there's peace for me, you can then share and teach God's design to other people that are coming a part of the family of God. We can end this cycle. We can end this perpetual cycle of, I'm just not happy. I'm going to go elsewhere. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand there's situations and places where it's unhealthy. There may be cases of abuse in this or that. And there's a part in Scripture that's even more difficult because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, the Lord would say to you that if you are separated, to not remarry but pursue reconciliation. But Jesus goes on in Matthew 19 saying, I understand this isn't for everyone. This is not something for everyone. Not everyone can get behind this. But you know the way it was from the beginning. And so if we can understand this, if we can understand this evasive action that he's calling us to, we can really guard our hearts. How many of you understand the importance of guarding our hearts? You know, when, you know I'm, I've been married now for, I think it's about, well, we're, I think we just celebrated 11 years. This is bad, 11, 11, maybe 12. Um, I know another couple just celebrated 12. I think it's messing me up a little bit here. Um, but yeah, congratulations, Brad and Lydia, on 12 years of marriage. Fantastic. That's wonderful. You know, when we look at that beautiful aspect of marriage, it is truly something remarkable. You think about it in today's landscape, it really is a miracle in some uh, regards. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. And so when he says, hey, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, he's saying, only have eyes for your spouse. Only have them occupy that special place in your heart. If you're looking outside that union, if you're looking to the other side, if you're coveting that which is not yours, which is another command of God, then you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted, and if you give in to that temptation and it's fully conceived, Solomon says, it'll destroy you. But this side of the cross, we can be thankful that Jesus is not only with us, he's prompting us, he's leading us, that we don't have to succumb to that temptation. We can have victory over it. That's why I love the Apostle Paul, the very murderer, the very person who went against the very church of God. Jesus calls him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He turned his life around. Went from a murderer to a proclaimer of the kingdom of God. There's hope for all of us. And there's a song written by the author Clint Brown that says, where would I be? Oh Lord, you only know. I'm glad you see through eyes of love. Where would I be if not for grace? Where would we be without his grace? What will we do when we face this challenge? You know, we watch movies, and you know how it is. You turn on a movie, and you see them doing something. You're like, no, 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 don't go that way. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, you fool, why did you? And we watch, and we, as if they can hear us. It's almost like in real life when you have friends and family that are making life decisions, you're thinking, ah, I don't know about that. Even when it comes to the word, you might have good friends and that are making decisions, and you're thinking, why? Well, have, you, have, you, have you read the Bible lately? 
And yet when we face those same circumstances, that's when we find out what we're really made of. That's when we find out who we trust, who we look to each day. Where are we looking? Who are we looking to? And that's why I shared right in the beginning of Romans 15 that scripture teaches us. Sometimes it can be tough to take in. Sometimes it can be difficult to assimilate it. But when we open ourselves up to the word of God that washes over us, that regenerates us by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have peace as we walk in his grace, in his word. We can learn not to do the things that have been shared with us. So we're very quickly going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I think you all understand this chapter. This is a story of David and Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba, Jim's looking at me. He's like, oh, man. Yeah, I think he might have whispered to, to his wife there, oh, here we go. This is going to be intense. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just putting words in your mouth, Jim. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. And so in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11, we see very quickly in this story that David, to, you know, to make a long story short, David was not where he should have been. Right in verse 1, go ahead, Claudia, and go 2 Samuel verse 1. It says, in the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And so then the sequence of events happened. It says one evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. Now keep the teachings of Jesus in mind. I think it really gives fire for effect here. So he's on the top of the roof of the palace, and he sees from the roof a, wo a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman, it says. So David sent someone, first, first problem, first wrong step, he sent someone to inquire of her. He saw, he looked and thought, who is that? So he sent his people to seek her out. And he said, isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? But still, David sent messengers to get her. He knew that she was taken. She was not his. And so when she came to him, he slept with her. He might think like, okay, well, let's hold the horses here on David for a second. She slept with him. And there's a whole part of this cultural aspect of kings and rulers and people submitting to kingship. I want you to understand I am not an expert in this area of Old Testament scripture. However, what I can understand and deduce from this is this was not God's design. God does not sanction or approve of this lifestyle. But there's still his mercy. In many ways, he's... Can, uh, there's a concession to the way that we live. It's not his design. It's not his perfect will, but it's his permissible. And so it says here that, you know, they slept together. And now she had just been purifying herself from uncleanliness just so we know that, hey, yeah, she's definitely going to be pregnant because she's no longer going through that process. It's medically possible for this to happen. And so she returned home and conceived. And so she sent word to inform David, I'm praying. And at that moment, David's probably thinking like, oh my goodness, I let it get this far. And so right away, David starts going to the process of, of trying to make amends by, in many respects, covering it up. 
In verse 6, he sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. Then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to the house. And so in many places, David continued to try and make Uriah feel at home and getting him to go home so he could cover up his mistake. And so going down the story, when David realized he wasn't able to get Uriah to go home, to lay with his wife, it says here in verse 14 that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Just think, David is enclosed within Uriah, his servant, his own death sentence. Where's the mercy in that? And so he takes it, and it says here in the letter to Joab, Joab, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. For a moment here, for whatever reason, David thought, I can, I can get away with this. The grass is going to be greener on the other side if I can just remove them from the equation. Like Cain with Abel. God's going to be so much more pleased with me if I can just remove him from the equation. But God was watching. And so this happens. Uriah goes to the battle. The battle is fierce. Joab does as David says. He removes the troops. And so in verse 21, halfway through, it says, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. We've, we've suffered great losses, but Uriah is dead. So in verse 25, David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. And in verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Sometimes we forget this part. The Lord was not putting his affirmation on what had transpired, what had occurred. Remember, David is a man after God's own heart. And look what the prophet Nathan, who comes and speaks with David, and he gives him this illustration, if you will, about a rich man, a poor man. The rich man, the king, has all these lambs, but he takes the poor man's lamb and, and, and takes it and sacrifices it for them to feast together. And so David gets mad and says, well, he, I demand justice for this man. And Nathan says to David, you're the man. You took from this man. It didn't belong to you. And so in verse 9, he says this, Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite, remember, thou shalt not kill, with the sword and took his wife as your own. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not engage in that activity outside of the marriage bond. You murdered him with the Ammonites' sword. And so verse 10, Now therefore the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
This is what the Lord says. Remember Proverbs. Remember Proverbs 6 and 7. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. God used circumstances and places and people, even within David's own family, to bring about this judgment, this consequence for his actions. And yet David experienced the very mercy of God. It's, it's hard as you're taking this in. Remember, we're under the new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. We're not under the law. We're going to get there in a moment, okay? But here's this consequence, and yet God is showing his mercy for David. He was seasoning the consequences. He was conceding if in a way because we're told, as the story goes on, that God spared David's life. We're told in the book of God's law that if you engage in adultery, both the adulterer and adulteress are to be put to death. Here, God is sparing David's life in the midst of the consequences that followed. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And here we see the course correction, this aspect of repentance. It's important to say, I've sinned against the Lord. I've done wrong in the eyes of God. And so Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin, you will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son you bore will die. And after Nathan went home, it says, the Lord struck that baby like um, that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became deathly ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted. He went home, and he spent the night lying around. And you could think, God, you're such a cruel God. How could you do this? Well, God is a, is a holy and faithful God. He is true to what he says he's going to do. His word described and declared, this is what, is what will happen out of not fulfilling obligation within this covenant. In Genesis 9, verse 5 to 7, it says, I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Verse 6, whoever sheds human blood by human blood will be shed. For God made humans in his image. Remember this piece again. We're creating the image of God. He cares so deeply for us. But you be fruitful and multiply, spread out over the earth and multiply. From the very beginning, he didn't want us engaging and in, in acting in such a way. And yet David learned this valuable lesson that I think we're all learning here or being reminded of here today, that God is holy, he is truly set apart, but his mercy and love is unlike any other. The fact that he would go through and understand the actions of David and he knew what his law required and yet he relented and did not take David's life. And I really appreciate hearing this example, this aspect of repentance. David didn't retreat and deny God. You know many times when we have experiences and maybe there's things we don't like, we turn our back on God in some ways. We say, well, God, I'm not going to worship you today. And here we see David, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And after his son had passed, look what happens. His servants came to him and said that his son had died. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 20, it says, David got up from the ground. He washed and anointed himself. Verse 20, 
David got up from the ground, he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. He went to the Lord's house and worshiped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. And his servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept. But when he died, you got up and ate food. I really appreciate his answer here. A man who has gone through the ringer, a man who's understood his actions and what has happened. He answers and says, while the baby was alive, I fasted. I wept because I thought, who knows, the Lord, and it says capital Lord, Yahweh, so make no mistake, it is God. I thought God may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he'll never return to me. Remember, we do not have the power within ourselves to change our hair from the black to white. We do not have the power within ourselves to save ourselves. David realizes the mistake that he made. He's returning to the Lord. And I appreciate what he says. I don't know if you got this part in verse 23. What does he say about his departed son? I will go to him. We think, God, this is just so cruel. Well, the the child is with the Lord. I'm going to see him again one day. And so the takeaways from the story as we begin to wrap things up here is that we should be where we ought to be. There's a time and season for everything. Sometimes we can be in a rush. Sometimes we can be in a hurry and we go and operate out of God's time. There might be someone that maybe is lined up that God's permissible will for you is to be with that person, but don't rush his time. Don't rush that season because he can work through the circumstance and pursue reconciliation. Look where you should be looking. Honor that blessing that you have. If David was looking where he should have been looking and honored that relation from the beginning, as he walked down the palace, he may have saw that woman, Bathsheba, thought she's a beautiful woman, but if he had not entertained the lustful thoughts, he wouldn't have sent a messenger, it wouldn't have led him down that path. It wouldn't have wreaked havoc on his house. And yes, this side of the cross, we're forgiven. Yes, this side of the cross, there's grace and mercy for us. We do not encounter the sentence of death, but make no mistake, there are consequences. We've all encountered them. You don't even have to think about adultery. Many areas, when we make those choices, we reap what we sow. The third takeaway is, in the shortcomings, do not retreat from God. Turn to him. Use that life lesson to turn and worship him and say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to walk after you. The word promises that he purifies us and leads us in all righteousness. Do you believe that? And I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself. This is something as I was celebrating my own anniversary not too long ago. I thought, Lord, I want to go the distance. I have so many friends and people that I know that have just packed it in. They weren't happy for whatever reason. I don't want to be a casualty. Now, again, this isn't a place of, of preaching on coming and, and, and speaking shame over you. But here are the words of Jesus to take it seriously. So here right now, if you are engaged in a a second marriage, 
here's the opportunity, as you already are doing, to sit and walk in his love and grace, to say, no matter what adversity and temptation I may face in the future, I'm going to go the distance. I'm going to go through endurance because of strength of character that he gives me. When I see temptation, I'm not going to seek fulfillment on the other side, but I'm going to look within to the hope of glory within me. I read a book by Andrew Womack not too long ago, Lessons from David. In many respects, to summarize a lot of things he was saying, he says this, to go outside of your marriage, even if you believe it's something God would have you do, it's as if you're saying, I don't trust in God to fulfill my life. I'm not trusting him to render his power and provision in my life and thereof. And so I will seek provision and fulfillment elsewhere. And when I read that, I thought, oh God, where would I be without your grace? And so to bring this thing full circle, I understand the tension of this part of Scripture because, again, as I've already said, some have succumbed and yet there is grace for us. As we consider this truth, as we understand the fact of God's design is between a man and a woman and it's not to be separated. If we can understand that, we can park that and understand that we cannot fulfill the law. We have the inability to do so. And so then we can only do as we must, trust in Jesus. And that's why he said in Matthew 5, verse 20, after saying I've come to fulfill the law, he says, I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You will never get into the kingdom of heaven. But thankfully we're told in Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who were sanctified. Titus chapter two, uh, 3, verse 3, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly, that through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. There's hope. I'm going to invite the worship team to come as we bring this part to a close. Part one. Part one. Part one. <laughs> part one. Now, some places, if we were living the old covenant, we'd be stopping right there and being like the children of Mount Sinai, you must do better. Jim, you got to do better. You know, Barb, you must do better. But under the new covenant, what Christ has done, this is what he's saying to us. In Christ, we are forgiven. Even as we act out in our responses, even to his design, we are forgiven. We're forgiven even when we make a mockery of his grace. Even when we misstep and when we have shortcomings, we are forgiven. We are holy, blameless children of God, even when we misstep, because we are forgiven. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So if you're here today, and maybe for a time, I really believe this in my spirit, there is someone here today that maybe you said and put this upon yourself, I am an adulterer, and that's who I am. Sometimes it's hard to shake this identity, but if, if you can grasp what we have in the new covenant, the grace that we have in Christ, that's not our identity. 
You are a child of God. You're not saved by your lack of sin, thank God. You're not saved by your marital status, thank God. Because today, if I, you know, if Megan and I, something happened and, you know, we separated, and God forbid that ever would happen, I would still be saved by the grace of God. I wouldn't be saved by my lack of sin. Because if it was like that from the old covenant, we would be in deep trouble. And that is why, again, I so appreciate these words on our banner from John chapter 3. 17, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it through him. And so he saves us. He cleanses us. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, you were once this way, but now you've been justified, you've been washed, you've been renewed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. That's who I am. And so with that, we can believe that the power of God is there to bring restoration to our marriages, to bring restoration to our relationships in all matters of our life. His grace is sufficient for you in all things. And so just remember, as we begin to sing a song, that every sin, I know we've talked about this before, but I think it's good to continue to reinforce how many sins did Jesus crucify on that cross? All of them. How about the penalties thereof? All of them. Thank God that we no longer come under judgment or the sentence of death. But Jesus said in John chapter five, because we believe in him, because we look to him and no one else, we have passed from death to life. And so now as we look at the writings of Scripture like we are told in Romans 15, the Word teaches us, encourages us, so that we can walk in the way of everlasting life. Amen? So there's a song that I've asked the worship team for us to, uh, to sing together. It's a powerful song. It's called, I Give You My Heart. And these words, it's not about, you know, saying to someone here today, well, you're not saved. You better get your heart right with God. No, this song is saying, because of who I am in you, Lord, I give you my heart. All that I am, I desire to be yours. I desire to follow after you with all I have within me. I give you praise. All that I adore is in you. And so I got to tell you, when my wife does things that I don't like, I have to realize that she's made in the image of God, that she's a child of God. I need to honor her. I need to love her. And we come from that place when we're honoring, desiring to honor God with all of our heart, to give him our whole soul, to say, I'm going to live for you alone. We'll be able to do that by the power of his grace. Because the word says his mercies are new every single day. And so this song goes something a little bit like this. Hit the, get the key there a little bit, Brad. Thank you. <laughs> and this is my desire to honor you. Lord, with all my heart, I worship you. If 
you know the words, I invite you to sing along with me. And all I have within me, I give you praise. All that I adore is in you. Sing, I, Lord, I give. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake. Lord, have your way in me. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, every moment I'm awake. Even in all our missteps, God, I thank you that you're with us, God. Thank you for your love, Jesus. Thank you for your love. Thank you, Lord, for your shed blood, the forgiveness that we experience because of what you did, your finished work at Calvary. Thank you, Lord, of our identity is firm and secure in who you are because of what you've done. I thank you, Lord, you continue to destroy the works of the enemy in our respective lives, in our family units, Lord, in our marriages, and all our relationships. I thank you, Lord, when we declare to say that I want my life to be after you, fasted after you, the anchor of my soul. Lord, as I give my heart to you, Lord, that you are with me. Lord, I thank you that you're with each person here today. Lord, you are guiding them. You are moving them. You are girding them for action. You're strengthened by the power of your spirit and by the mightiness of your grace to lead us in the way that honors you in all our relationships. That as we sing it, Lord, that you are truly lifted up and magnified within our lives. That our, our friends, our family members, our, our co-workers, our neighbors can say, there's something different about who you are because you're enduring. I couldn't have gone through what you went through. I thank you, Lord, that you help us. You give us strength of character to endure. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, have your way in me. Lord, have your way in me. Thank you, Lord. As the worship team continues to play, I'm going to invite you as our you know, dismissal for this afternoon is if you're here and if you sense a, a touch in your heart, it's not a touch of condemnation, it's not a touch of, 
of guilt. The, the Holy Spirit does work in lives. He brings to recollection. There's an aspect of conviction in how he leads us. But as they sing, as they proclaim the love of God that is over you, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to strengthen you, and to move you in the areas that he's prompting you. Each one of us, even here as I was preaching, he was prompting things on my heart. That's for me in my inner prayer closet to heed that calling and what he's speaking to me. He's speaking to each of us. And so if you need to go today, God bless you. So glad you were here today. I, I thank you that you sat through part one. We have part two and three coming up. But be at peace. God is for you and he's not against you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.